Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went down toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luce at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tent. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Glad to meet you. My name is Vincent Hoppe. I'm the pastor of Grace and Peace. If you have questions what Grace and Peace is about, I am free to meet with you and would love to meet you. But we're continuing through the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis covers more or less, uh, not necessarily how things happen, as it were to give you a list of what God was doing, but rather, it's not a scientific textbook, but rather, it is uh, why God has done what He has done, in order to give the people their purpose and setting in the world so that they know who they are to be as God's people. But here raises the question. Where in the world can you meet with God? Where do you find God? Your friend came up and asked you, how would you answer that? One author, a naturalist, suggested like this. You're going on a strange journey this time, my friend. I don't envy you. You'll have a hard time keeping your heart light and simple in the midst of this crowd of madmen. Instead of the music of the wind among the spruce tops, and the tinkling of waterfalls, your ears will be filled with the oaths and groans of these poor, deluded, self-burning people. Keep close to nature's heart yourself. And break clear away once in a while and climb a mountain. 
or spend a week in the woods, wash your spirit clean from the earth stains of this sordid, gold-seeking crowd in God's pure air. It will help you in your efforts to bring to these people something better than gold. Don't lose your freedom in your love of the earth as God made it. These are the words of John Muir. He's a naturalist. He's a bearded Scottish man, a mountaineer. Uh, you can imagine him being an awesome social media influencer nowadays on Instagram. You know, hashtagging the North Face or something like that on his sweet adventures. You see, he was something of an anomaly in his days in the early 1900s. He largely rejected the fast and furious life of making riches, including going out for gold and the gold rushes. He rejected that because he saw through this. He understood that progress, wealth, and riches doesn't give him everything that he wanted. It would leave him wanting. Today, he's reaching the apex of his popularity because he speaks like a modern man, yearning to find God. That's what a lot of us are doing these days. We're yearning to find God through the mundane. We're trying to find something transcendent in the ordinary. And a lot of us have been left bored and waiting and wanting to find something greater. What we want for it, what he was looking for, and what he was suggesting was that we find a way to commune with the divine. He believed that the way to do it was to escape the madness of the bustling city in the height of modernism. Modernism believed that the secular world of progress would bring the kingdom of God without a king. And they would have all of God's stuff and wouldn't have to obey him. You see, many believe that God was met in ancient, in, in ancient temples, but he believed, John Muir, that the first temples were in nature. That's where you met God. And he believed that the basic naked presence of nature, in which one would return to, returns to their roots to meet their creator. He rejected the hustle and bustle and promises of money and modernization for the city or for, and, and the city for communion in nature. He sounds a lot like a lot of my former students and friends in my life. He seems built more for the modern world. Uh, what do I mean by this? I have recently uh, ran into one of my former students. He was a WashU student, graduated, was making $120,000 in his first year out of college as an undergrad. You know, WashU, uh, Washington University, uh, just a bunch of eggheads. Uh, I think there was like 30 National American finalists in our small group. That's crazy to think about, okay? Uh, and so... He was making over $120,000 a year. He gets out three years and realizes, you know what, I just can't do this anymore because I don't think this is what life is for. He wanted to commune with the divine, and having money and the safety of the city wasn't what he wanted. So what did he do? He had already saved up $200,000, so he traveled the world for a couple of years. And where did I meet him? We were on a bus happened to sit right across from each other on our way to the slopes of Keystone. It's kind of funny. But he was just a modern man who had rejected everything that the hands could do and was trying to commune with God out in nature through adventure. 
You know, the secular recipe states that this world is all there is. There is no divine meaning, no divine being without cre beyond creation. Therefore, since there's none of this, you're free to define yourself and create for yourself uh, whatever meaning you want within the realms of nature. But we can't seem to live comfortably in this world, can we? Closed off from magic, enchantment, and all that goodness that we can have. This is why Disney is so popular. Suspend your imagination for, you know, three or four days. Spend relentless amounts of money on souvenirs, and you can dress up and be a princess for an hour or so. They have giant mice running around. You know, if there's giant mice running around in this world, like running of unusual size, you know, uh, Princess Bride, you stab it, okay? But no, here at Disneyland, it's magical, and it's really wonderful. Give them hugs, okay? So, Disney is super popular. Why? Because you can suspend your simple mundane lives to live a life in those times full of magic and enchantment. And that's what we're searching for. Is there a way that my ordinary mundane life could possibly be more enchanted, more magical? And what that is at the root is this desire to commune with the divine. To have your bearings, to be made whole, secure, sturdy in this world by interacting with something transcendent and more permanent than the fragility of this world. The problem, though, is whether or not this nature is going to be enough to ground us and to give the human soul the stability to make it through this world. Girlfriends are going to break up with you. Mom and dad are going to, it feels like they're going to betray you. You're going to watch retirement accounts disappear. Foundations of your houses are going to crack. Ground your life and your meaning or your identity in anything of this world, and you're just going to be as fragile as the foundation of your house. It can be moved in a second by the quaking of the earth. See, finding this meaning, defining ourselves is a task too large. And in the end, we will find that doing this just makes ourselves tired, exhausted, embarrassed, bullied, and find ourselves tired of, of, of having to perform for social media. You know, many of us have begun to realize that the self-made definition and identity for ourselves is fragile and dependent just on the moment and how I feel. And so we ask ourselves, what in the world could possibly make us permanent? It is communing with something larger than ourselves. We need communion with God. And here in this text, that is exactly where Jacob finds himself. He needs communion with God. He was striving for it his whole life. He was building for it so that he could have himself something permanent. If I could get the birthright, then I'd be somebody and I'd be stable in this world. If I got the blessing of God, then I could be somebody and I could be stable in this world. And all his scheming, all his work, all his white knuckling couldn't possibly give it to him. Jacob finds himself in an insecure position. He's a fugitive. He's out in the middle of nowhere. The sun is about to set. There's marauding bands of raiders out in the desert. There are wild animals out in the desert. And the sun is setting. He has no tent. And he has a rock for 
a pillow. And so you're wondering why he's having weird, whacked out dreams. He needs to call the My Pillow Man so he can get the two for one deal because that rock is going to make him feel weird and uh, mess up and give him a migraine and he's going to have a crazy experience with God, is what happens. This is where he finds himself in the dark, literally, all his scheming, all his efforts to make himself a somebody. To give him permanence in the world has got him where? Out in the dark and alone. But that's often where God meets us, isn't it? What does he find in the darkness? He finds the God of his dreams. Oh, no, no, no. Not the God of his expectations. Not the God that he necessarily wants. And not the God of his imagination, but rather he finds the God that he really needs and is the God of his dreams. More substantial and more real than the rock that he is sleeping on. And what do we learn here? We learn this, that God initiates for a purpose so we respond. God initiates for a purpose so we respond. Well, and God initiates... Jacob tried to secure for himself a way in the world, but instead finds himself lost. And the way to be found, though, is not through following ten rules, not by uh, following the eightfold path or the four noble truths or the five pillars. No. It is not through formulaic processes of meditation, mantras, and body poses. It is not through formulas of getting an education, getting a sweet car, to attract an awesome lady, to have four kids, have an awesome house, and retire when you're 45 and travel the world. That is not the formula. It is not the formula of man get to heaven, but rather it is heaven come to earth. Notice God initiates, God opens heaven and earth and comes to him and meets him in the darkness, in the middle of nowhere. Jacob's in a vulnerable spot. He's in the wilderness. Darkness has come upon him. He's in an uncertain place that everybody knows, the audience will know that this is a place where you meet God. And it will be transformed into that. The setting lets you know he's scared. But he meets the God of his dreams because God initiates with this schemer. And so we know that it is not that we clean ourselves up in order to be presentable to God, nor to make ourselves morally clean in order that we may meet God, but rather God initiates and finds the schemer in the darkness, running away from his past, trying to avoid it, having lost everything, and God meets you there. He meets this self-referential, narcissistic man at the end of his rope. And if God is going to work and transform a man like Jacob, you can know that he can transform and work in, a, in, in your life as well. God initiates and that will transform Jacob. He is not a perfect man immediately after this. He is still messed up and scheming. But he is God's messed up and scheming man. And that's the way God works. In verses 12 and 13, we see that the direction of the ladder or steps, think about ancient ziggurat and temples and different things like that, are not directed as on earth to heaven. Rather, the way it is written, it is written that it is heaven open coming to earth. And so the direction of Christian theology is not man get to God and God come to earth. 
That's the direction that it goes. Orthodox Christianity tells you it is not make it out of earth, escape through good works and make it to heaven. Rather, it is heaven come to earth in the person of Jesus. It is not climbing out of earth, but rather heaven and earth united in the person of Jesus. Let me put it this way. Okay? It is not the VBS song, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. You know that song? Have you heard of that? That is a terrible VBS song. You can put that on, like, uh, wow, or, like, you know, uh, now uh, worst worship hits uh, ever, okay? Why? Because no one is climbing Jacob's Ladder. That is backwards theology. That is not orthodox theology. Rather, it is that Jacob's Ladder, it is God coming to earth, coming to rescue his people. And so, do you know what you, you ought to say whenever you hear that in the VBS again? You ought to stand up and say, excuse me, but I want to kick over your ladder because that is heresy. Okay? Maybe, maybe not that extreme. Maybe not that extreme. But, I would say, in a kind way, I think you need to read it again. Okay? Only the Vincent Hoppy version has me like just kick over ladders and stuff like that. Anyway. <laughs> but we see that God initiates, and we don't lift a finger to save ourselves. In fact, all of our efforts to make heaven for ourselves is creating a personal hell, and it is what makes this world at times feel like hell. When we try to climb out our own way as Jacob did, we find that we've only dug ourselves and our grave deeper. Christianity isn't that God even makes it possible. It isn't even that. It isn't that God says, I'm going to make it down three quarters of the way, and you've got to get on this nice, cute little step ladder, take four steps toward me. That isn't Christianity. That isn't the way it works. No, he does everything. You see, as T.S. Eliot says in one of his poems, most evil is done by those with good Oftentimes, our desire to make our own way in our own world is just making the world worse. And evil is done because of it. It is always about God's initiative. And our attempts to clean up, make it, you know, make it to God is a lot like one of my children who I uh, came across one day and it involved pink nail polish. I noticed that there was the sound of an exhaust fan running on downstairs, and I am coming down the stairs to initiate and find out what's going on. And one of my kids comes up the stairs and like says, uh, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> and having four kids, I'm all like, test me. <laughs> and so I walk in there, and I open the door to the fumes of nail polish hitting my head, And there she is, rubbing fluorescent pink, glittery nail polish right on into that brow. She has good intentions, but she is making it so much worse. And I look down at her, I'm like, honey, how's it going? And she goes, are you going to be mad at me? And I'm all like, well, I put it like that. No, because you're way too cute. And I'm like, well, let's work this out. 
You see, the way of salvation and the way of Christianity is not that we clean up the mess ourselves, but rather God does it for us and He initiates that cleanup. And so I was down there with mineral spirits or, or nail polish remover scrubbing it into my uh, drought until I about passed out and uh, had a headache for two days. But that's the way it is. God starts. God knows. And all of our good intention can't possibly make it otherwise. Jacob had good intentions for his life, but dug himself a hole. And it is only God who gets him out of that hole by initiating. And God has a purpose as he initiates. God hasn't chosen Jacob with that just kind of willy-nilly, do whatever you want. Hey, Jacob, I'm here to save you. Now you can do whatever you want. Okay? You know, trying to parent like that isn't going to work well either. And you see, this purpose, though, gives a direction for Jacob. And it grounds him. It makes his identity up in order that he may be transformed. And God says that he is going to be with him and bless him so that this may be done. And so it rests not on the effort of Jacob, but on the purposes God has and is secured by his faithfulness, not by Jacob's work. And what is that purpose? It is to bless others. It is to bring God's wholeness Fullness, healing, goodness into this world so that this world reflects the values that God has for it. It is values of mercy and love and justice and equality. It is the kingdom of God coming in and where God is king. See, God promises it. You see, this tells us something about the church. He has a purpose for his church. And it is not so that his church can be healthy and wealthy and have it all together, living life as if we're in a little country club. No, rather the church exists not for itself, but for the well-being and blessing of others, for the blessing of this community. So that we may give and love and care. So that we may take back to our home kindness and mercy so that we will give forgiveness instead of retaliation so that we would reflect those qualities that is the purpose of the church to be a transforming effect into this world by the way we treat other people let's look at verses 13 through 15 God reiterates the promise and blessing that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and it wraps up with that purpose statement that in your offspring, in you and your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Meaning happiness, peace, and ultimate fullness that we all long for. Salvation. Eternal life. Healing. Is all found through this family ultimately through the one offspring, Jesus Christ. And is secure. Not by effort, not by our working, but it's secured by the faithfulness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. His promise is what makes it happen, not our white knuckling, not our teeth gritting. It's God's faithfulness that causes us to respond in faith. This points ultimately to the true temple, the true presence of God. 
See, the economy of heaven and earth, the kingdom comes through one person. And in John 1, 51, Nathaniel, he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says to him, Come and see. And so Nathaniel comes toward Jesus, and Jesus says, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile or deceit, or no scheming, very much like Jacob was. And Nathaniel said, Then how do you know me? And Jesus then reveals this thing, and I don't know, it's very cryptic. Before Philip called you, when you were under the victory, I saw you. And Nathaniel's like, Get out of here. Anyway, uh, it's not what he said. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus says this, because I say to you, I saw you under the feet, truth, you believe, you'll see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Meaning, if you want heaven on earth, it does not come through your making of it, through your building of it. It comes through Him, Jesus Christ, where heaven and earth meet. It comes through Jesus. God has an intention and a purpose for His people. And oftentimes that competes with what we think is best for us, doesn't it? We have an alternative agenda. But maybe consider this. Maybe consider you don't know what's best for you. If you didn't create yourself, and maybe you haven't been able to define life for yourself, maybe you're not qualified to create your own identity. Think of it this way. My doctor tells me all the time, Vince, you just can't eat whatever you want. And oftentimes I want to say, watch me. <laughs> to which I remember that I am married. She has different purposes for my life and intentions for my life. And so what do I do? Because I love my wife more than I love corned beef, or more than I love hot dogs, or not Cheetos, I say, I say, I need to put those away and eat healthy. You see, these purposes God has for causes us to change what we think is best. And when we have the security and freedom of knowing what our purpose is, and then we know that work can't build a kingdom for me, then we have the freedom to actually work for the common good. We have the freedom to work for people. We can sacrifice. When parenting, we know that parenting isn't going to build me a kingdom because I know that my kids aren't going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. Go to Stanford and make millions of dollars for me. Although I wish they would. Trust me. Okay? I know that I can just parent with grace and kindness and mercy because I know that they are not my kingdom. Think about your romantic life. You then know with freedom that this romance is going to have is going to be everything for you. You're free to say, I don't need this romance. You don't need to sacrifice for it. You don't need to make yourself into something that you're not. You don't have to lie on your Tinder profile, or Bumble, or Hinge, or whatever else you're on nowadays. It's too many of them. But that's the deal. How in the world does duty become delight? It is only when you're secure and the purposes are brought about by someone else other than you 
how do we respond? And delight respond is, is a response of worship. Bethel is God's meeting place. Throughout the Old Testament, we would see that this is a worship place, a place where sacrifice happens. But Jacob, he isn't really all the way there. He kind of tears. He makes vows, yes. But he's not all the way there. He says, if this happens, then I will return. Then I will worship. And I will give a tenth. But here he gives nothing. He builds a, builds a pillar and not an altar. Meaning, this is cool. If this happens, awesome. I'll remember this place. But I'm not going to sacrifice yet. He makes a vow. It's still conditional. You see, God is still distant for him. And oftentimes that's where we are when we start our faith. Little, fragile, distant. And still hedging our bets. But God is not embarrassed to come into life with people who still hedge their bets. He still loves you. He still gives himself for you. He still opens up heaven and earth for you to come and get them. You see, what do we do? How do we respond? And the indications of this being God's temple, like temples of the ancient Near East, this is where the gods resided and where people were to commune with God. And so contrary to what John Muir says, this person, Jesus Christ, is the true temple. Why do I say that? Because in John chapter 2, the book of John makes this point, that the true temple, the true meeting place of God, the place where you commune with God, is in the person of Jesus. In John chapter 2, John says to the people, destroy this temple after he cleans it out. People are like, what are you doing? He cleanses, cleanses the temple, drives people out, and he says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. And people are all like, Say what? And John makes a subscript. He says, because he was talking about the temple of himself. You want to be transformed? You want to communion with God? You want to taste and see that God is good? Do you want to have your heart so full of love and so transformed and so transfixed? And it feels like you've been run over by a train and it will take every piece and every effort to put you back together again. You want that? God is saying that He initiates it. And He rips heaven and earth open in the person of Jesus Christ. That He is heaven come to earth. He is heaven and earth kissing. He is the life we always wanted. Can't get there. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except for him. He's the true temple of God, the meeting place between God and man. You see, we're called to worship in spirit and truth, and Jesus is that true meeting place. And so we do ordinary things, and we come back to ordinary places to meet Jesus because that's the way He made it. You need worship. You need Jesus more than the air you breathe. I'm talking to myself right now, I think. 
I need Jesus more than water after I've ridden 60 miles on a dry day on my bike. I need him more than I need oxygen at the top of a 14,000 foot mountain. I need Jesus. And he meets you in the ordinary place of his word and in this sacrament. And do you know what it's like? You're like, do, you have, do I have to do more? Does it have to get bigger and better every time? No. Does your spouse have to be bigger and better for you every time? No. No. I've been married 15 years, and I can tell you that there is something that surprises me about my wife every day. Imagine how much more so when you come back to Jesus and you discover something more, something new, that the depth of his love is deeper than the Mariana Trench, and it is higher than Mount Everest. That in Jesus, in meeting God in Jesus, he can thrill you more than you've ever known. He can bring you love and humble you further than you've ever experienced. Experiencing that kind of love, the love that sticks with you and won't quit on you, when you embrace that, you're free to open up your chest and say, These are, this is what I've got, I've got mess, I've messed up, and you can confess it. You have to be taken outside of yourself. You have to experience that love, and God initiates that love in Jesus. It is a beauty of love and knowing it that makes us respond. It is the love of that you read in the text of the Bible that dissects your heart and not you dissecting it. It makes you change. The greatest example of this is one of my little lovely daughters on our trip to the Grand Canyon started kicking the back of my seat with 15 miles to go. She was kicking it and she complained, are we there yet? My legs hurt. I'm like, of course her legs hurt because you're kicking the back of my seat. And then she would say, I'm hungry. My stomach hurts. My eyes hurt. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm about to Thelma and Louise this thing into the Grand Canyon. We are able to park quickly I get him out of the car, and my kid is still complaining. She is holding a uh, water bottle like a football. Of course, not real five points of contact, but she just kind of got it. That you know how little kids hold footballs, all that stuff. You're like, that's a fumble. <laughs> so she's holding, holding the water bottle there, and she is walking along the way. She's got these giant, huge, uh, hippie-looking tie-dye color, heart-shaped sunglasses, saying, are we there yet? This better be good. Uh, just complain. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm about to lose it. I'm about to die. I'm about to throw myself into this Grand Canyon, and it's all over, and I don't have to hear this complaining anymore. But she keeps going, and suddenly between the trees, you start to see the clearing, and you start to see the beauty of the Grand Canyon. And what do you hear out of her? It is no longer complaining. You start to hear this. <gasps> and we keep walking. And she's like. <gasps> and we get to the 
could see the Grand Canyon with her eyes. And no longer is she thinking and complaining about all her troubles. But rather she's enraptured by the beauty of this Grand Canyon. And she exclaims, it's beautiful. She didn't complain the rest of the day. What transformed her that way? It was the beauty of the Grand Canyon. What transforms a Christian is the beauty of seeing the love of God that is deeper than the Grand Canyon. That can swallow your life whole in an instant. And where do we see that love? We see that love in Jesus put on the cross, torn apart. 